Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. My name is Ross Makichi, and today our honored guest is Sumbul Ali Karamali. Sumbul Ali Karamali is an award-winning author and speaker whose books, articles, blogs, and speaking events are her way of promoting intercultural understanding in the world. Sumbul grew up in Southern California, answering questions about Islam and Muslims. With her degree in English from Stanford University, her law degree from the University of California at Davis, and a, degree, a law degree in Islamic law from the University of London's School of Oriental and African Studies, she left the world of corporate law to start writing books to answer those very questions. When not writing, Sumbul is a fiction and nonfiction judge, a board member of nonprofits dedicated to multi multicultural education, and a member of the steering committee of Women in Islamic Spirituality and Equality, or WISE, as well as the Muslim Wislam Women's Global Shura Council, both of which aim to promote women's rights and human rights from an Islamic perspective. Our guest's first book, The Muslim Next Door, The Quran, The Media, and That Veil Thing, was published in 2008. In it, she addressed the kinds of questions she'd always been asked, but which were never answered in the media or even in classrooms. While on her book tour, several teachers complained to her of the absence of age-appropriate books on Islam for high school students. As a result, in 2012, she wrote her second book, Growing Up Muslim, Understanding the Beliefs and Practices of Islam, a nonfiction chapter book. The book was written for ages 10 and up, but is appropriate for adults as well. Today, Sumbul is here with us in conversation about her newest book, which was released in August 2020. It's titled Demystifying Sharia, what it is, how it works, and why it's not taking over our country. For me, I've got to say this book was very inspiring. I'm someone who knew almost nothing about Islam or Sharia, or what it means to be a practicing Muslim in the world today. I had a very vague kind of unexamined idea that Islam might be sexist or violent and outdated in today's world. This, it seems, is a common sentiment and one that our honored guest, 
very skillfully dismantles and, and clarifies the origins of, helping us to see the difference between the actual essence of Sharia and the way it may be misinterpreted or misused. To learn more about her work, you can visit her website, which is sumbalalikaramali.com. Banyan community, please join me in a warm welcome for Sumbal Ali Karamali. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. And for all of you who can't spell my name, which I totally sympathize with, you can also go to muslimnextdoor.com and that will also get you to my website. So thank you, Ross, for your introduction. And thank you for having me here. It's really an honor to be at, at, at this bookstore. And I, since I've been writing books, I have a new and deep appreciation for independent booksellers. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And please, throughout this discussion, uh, excuse any of my mispronunciations. I'm doing my best. <laughs> oh, it's fine. <laughs> I, I, I will answer just about anything, but you did a great job with my name. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, so you, you made this jump from, from corporate law into writing. Can you tell us a bit about the background of, of how that occurred? Yeah, well, I, I really feel like it started when I was a kid because, um, you know, I grew up in just really in L.A. County in Los Angeles. And and when I grew up, there was hardly any there were hardly any Muslims around me. I was I grew up in a white middle class neighborhood and um, I got all kinds of questions, like including are you white or black? Or, um, you know, do, oh, you're Indian, do you um, wear feathers in your hair and paint your face? So I, I got all kinds of questions. And certainly um, religion doesn't come up a lot when you're an elementary school kid playing on the playground. But every so often I went to a birthday party and I um, couldn't eat the pepperoni pizza. And so I had to explain that it was pork and I couldn't eat pork because I was Muslim. And as I got older, um, <clears throat> Sometimes, you know, I started praying regularly five times a day, and sometimes I'd have to leave my friends to go pray um, in a, a sort of late middle school, early high school. I started fasting more regularly, too. Um, some of your listeners might know that that means no food or water until sunset um, for 30 days, and that happens every year. And I'll tell you, like, sometimes I just got myself into these fixes. So... I went to school one day in high school and I was fasting, no food or water till sunset. And it was hot. It was like May or June. And I, I realized when I got to school that, that that day was the day we were supposed to run the mile for the physical fitness, like for the presidential physical fitness test, which we did every year. <laughs> and, and, you know, at the time there weren't any Muslims around me. I didn't, my friends didn't know any other Muslims. My, my teachers didn't know any Muslims. And, um, so the thought of actually going to my PE coach and saying, well, you know, I can't run the mile because, you know, I'm fasting was just mind bogglingly incomprehensible to me. So, um, so of course I just sucked it up and ran without any food or water. I was telling, um, by the way, a sixth grade class, this story and one boy raised his hand and he said, what was your time? So <laughs> <laughs> I said, I, I don't remember, but anyway, so, so, um, so I answered a lot of questions and then I went away to, when I went to college, um, I lived in the dorm and, you know, everybody knows what everybody else is doing. And suddenly I was thinking, how am I going to pray five times a day without my roommate noticing when she 
lives a foot away from me? And how am I going to figure out if there's pork in the dorm food when nobody knows what's in the dorm food? <laughs> and, uh, and such questions, you know, and, um, and as I got older, I went to law school, started working, Islam was increasingly in the news. And I still got all these questions that people wanted me to answer. And some of them were hostile, and some of them were just curious. And so I thought, um, oh, and then when I started working, people started asking me for book recommendations. And there was nothing on Islam. There was nothing, there was nothing interesting to read. There were academic books, or there were uh, Sufi poetry volumes, but there weren't any books that just answered the kinds of questions I've been an asked, sorry, asked, <laughs> answering my whole life. And so um, when my husband's job took us to London, uh, I decided to do a, an additional degree in Islamic law from the University of London. Um, and actually, I sort of did this degree so that I could write a book. So I came back and I started writing books. So that's what happened. I was just on an interview and the interviewer said, that's the nerdiest thing I've ever heard of. You actually got a degree so that you could write a book. <laughs> so what can I say? <laughs> Sounds very focused and goal oriented. <laughs> so that's how, that's how it all started. So it's, it's kind of, you know, my writing books, I, I try to write them. They're all in first person and they're all introductions to Islam and Muslims. And I try to write them um, as if I were say, sitting across the table from you having tea and in a conversational, personal way, because yeah. that's how I've been answering questions. Yeah, and that's definitely the feeling right from the start. And, um, you know, I, I, I found it really fascinating because, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if I even had heard the term Sharia much um, before this. Uh, and maybe you can just start by, for those who don't know, what what Sharia is actually, and then after that we can get into some of the ways that it's been misused or misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. Well, so when I wrote my first book, which came out in two thousand eight, nobody was talking about this word. Nobody, in fact, even Muslims. Um, when I was growing up, nobody knew this word Sharia. I don't think I learned it until I. I did my degree in Islamic law. So it's not, it's an academic term of art. It's not something that is in general usage. Um, and when I wrote my first book, it, it just, it just wasn't out there. And so I didn't cover it. And yet two years later, there are suddenly anti-Sharia protests. And, um, you know, people are saying that Sharia is going to take over the United States. And it, it's, it's, amazing to me and we can get to why that happened later um but essentially i mean even muslims can't really define sharia so so it's, it's gotten very out of hand but um it's hard to define because it doesn't have one fixed meaning so sharia literally in arabic means the road to water or the road to the watering place and that's the road you want to be on if you're in the desert right and um, in religious terms, it means the, the righteous path, the path you want to be on to quench your spiritual thirst. So the righteous path or the path of God, the path that you want to be on. <clears throat> so that's what it means in sort of abstract terms. Um, for, for early Muslims, 
uh, in the seventh century. Islam was formed in the seventh century. Um, early Muslims were asking themselves the question, well, what do I do to be on the path of God? How do I act? What do I eat? How do I behave? And for them, they had two clues. They had the Quran, which is the Muslim holy book, and they had the Sunnah, which is the words and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad. And so they looked to these for answers, to answer the question, what do I do to be on the path of God? And um, sometimes they found the answers, but sometimes they didn't. And so they started interpreting those religious texts and they filled thousands and thousands of books um, of interpretation on the religious text, uh, trying to answer this question, what do I do to be on the way of God? So um, this whole mass of interpretive literature is called fiqh, which means understanding. And they, <laughs> the fiqh is not laws, it's not rules, it's a mass of opinions and debates and arguments and, you know, sort of um, just sometimes um, consensus, sometimes minority arguments, sometimes, you know, all, it's, it's all kinds of different, different debates. Um, there's, in fact, um, on all the issues of Islamic law in the centuries, only about 1% achieved a consensus of the scholars on what the answer was. Right. So, so that means 99% of all the interpretations and the answers that they tried to come up with, 99% of them are subject to disagreement, right. which means that, and so, so sometimes Sharia, in addition to the path of God, is also, it also refers to the Quran and the Sunnah because those are the, the divine uh, text in Islam, but sometimes it refers to the Quran and the Sunnah and the Fiqh, this whole mass of interpretive literature, um, and by extension, to the whole sort of legal tradition in Islam. And by legal tradition, I don't mean law the way we think of law, which is rigid and enforceable. I mean law as in religious guidelines, mostly having to do with personal conduct, that tell us as Muslims what we should do to be on the path of God. So, does that make sense? <laughs> it does. And one of the things that I was struck by is that it's almost it's almost inherently plural and flexible in its in its appropriate application. Mm -hmm. That's right, because because the the and, and there's a reason for this, and the reason is that when the Islamic scholars were applying methodologies to the religious text and interpreting them and coming up with answers, um, as long as they were uh, learned scholars who applied the, the accepted methodology, their answer was valid. So if I were a mufti or a mullah or a sheikh or lots of different words for an Islamic scholar, and there were some women, even in early Islam, if I were an Islamic scholar and someone asked me a question and I looked to the religious text and then looked to other interpretations and then applied the methodology and came up with my own interpretation and came up with an answer, like, yes, you can do whatever it is, or no, you can't do whatever it is. Um, I would always say, I would, I would give my opinion, which was called a fatwa, and I would say at the end of it, but God knows best. Mm -hmm. And what that meant is that I think I'm right because I've done everything I should do, but maybe that guy over there who has a different answer, maybe he's right. And only God knows best. Only God knows which one of us is right, right? Because we're both um, recognized Islamic scholars applying the accepted methodology. So 
I think that's what, um, so, so inherently you have this, this variation and disagreement. So if you say, what does the Sharia say on any one thing, chances are it'll say more than one thing because you had these Islamic scholars and um, they often disagreed more often than not. And yet each of their opinions were valid interpretations of Islam. Right, okay. I think what I'm about to send your way is a two-part question, but uh, mm -hmm. first off, it's, it's how do we identify proper use of Sharia versus people claiming legitimate Sharia? And I, I think this ties in with what you what is called makasid al Sharia, mm -hmm. the, goal, the goals the goals of Sharia. Mm -hmm. So the makasid al Sharia. Um, so so as I said, there wasn't a whole lot of agreement in the fiqh in the opinions, um, but the scholars did all agree that all Islamic law had to comply with the goals of the Sharia. And the goals were articulated um, as five or six goals. And these were the protection of life, the protection of religion, the protection of access to resources, the protection of family, and the protection of intellect, uh, including education. So and I just those are- The protection of religion includes all religion. Is that true? So the protection of being able to practice religion. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. Thank you. And of course, since they were Islamic scholars, they, were, they would have been focused on their own religion because <laughs> everyone's focused on their own situation. But Islamic history, uh, all Islamic civilizations and history were multi-religious civilizations. And, um, and, they, and Sharia only applied to the Muslims. So uh, even historically, Jews and Christians and Zoro Zoroastrians were ruled by their own religion and culture and not by Sharia. So I'll just give you an example. So Muslims, as a lot of people know, are not allowed to eat pork or drink alcohol. And yet, um, even in medieval Islamic lands, uh, Jews were allowed to cultivate wine and Christians were allowed to cultivate pigs because they were not subject to the same restraints. Uh-huh. Now, you, you, you make it clear in the book that Sharia is not the law of the land in any place in the world right now, which seems contrary to many people's belief, especially if we look at countries like Iran or Saudi Arabia. Can you clarify mm -hmm. that for us? Yeah, and that's a complicated question. <laughs> These are all complex issues, people. Yes, so. <laughs> very complicated. Yeah. So, and the reason it's complicated is because you have to know a little bit about how Sharia works in order to see that why it's not Sharia anywhere in the world. So first, how it worked. Um, the Sharia-based legal system was in effect in Islamic lands for over a thousand years. You could say all, about 1300 years, in fact. That's um, the longest continually running legal tradition in the world. Mm. And so it's unique in human history. Now, the way it worked is that um, those that governed in Islamic civilization were separate from those who developed the religious law. And early on in Islamic history, there was a big fight over this. Um, the rulers also wanted to be able to develop the religious law. They wanted to get to impose the version they wanted. They wanted to have control over the, the religious law. And there was a big argument. And the scholars said, nope, you can't have it. We're, we have authority. You don't have authority. 
and the scholars were tortured and punished, but they emerged victorious. And so uh, for the rest of Islamic history, the ruler governed and made rules about like taxation and speed limits and market regulation. Um, but the religious scholars are the ones who developed the religious law. And so even though um, there was some overlap in old times, uh, generally speaking, there was a separation of governance and religion in Islamic culture. The religious scholars were on the ground. So if I were someone who wanted to divorce, for example, if I didn't know what situations I could get a divorce under, and Muslim women, by the way, did have the right to divorce from the very beginning, from the seventh century. Uh, if I wanted a divorce, I could go to one Islamic scholar and he could give me an answer. And if I didn't like that answer, I could go to another Islamic scholar and he might give me another answer. If I didn't like that either, I could go to a third one. And I could do this until I found the answer that I liked. <laughs> and now if it came to some sort of a dispute, if, if uh, my husband, I said, look, you know, I can get a divorce. My husband said, no, you can't. Then we might go to court. The judge would look at all the fatwas, which is what I had, right? I had lots of different fatwas. He would look at all the fatwas, other situations, other circumstances, and he would come up with an answer um, to the dispute. So it sort of worked on the ground. The ruler didn't have a lot to do with it. So, so Islamic law or Sharia-based law was flexible and adaptable because they took into for one thing, it was varied. It wasn't rigid. You could go to all different kinds of scholars and they might say different things. So it was variable. It also um, was flexible because, because all the opinions um, had to do with factors like need or necessity or uh, time and place or culture. So for example, Muslims are not only allowed to eat pork, but if you're starving and there's nothing else to eat, I mean, literally starving, not just really hungry, <laughs> but if you're starving, you can eat pork so because of necessity. So there are all kinds of factors that they took into account. So it was a flexible and pluralistic law, meaning that the law came from different sources on the ground. Now, what's happening now is not Sharia. So Iran, for example, well, first of all, all Muslim majority countries are constitutional states. Most of them have civil codes that are based on the French civil law system. Um, Iran has a civil code and a constitution. And after the 1979 revolution, what the leaders there started to do was take Islamic sounding provisions and tack them on to the civil code. Now, what happens if you have the government imposing so-called religious law on people. Well, that's a theology. And Iran is the first time that there were, it's not, not theology, sorry, theocracy. theocracy. <laughs> yeah, theocracy. Iran is the first time in 1400 years of Islamic history that, that there has been a theocracy because before that you didn't have the ruler imposing religious law. And it's not Sharia, it's, you know, it's a Western style civil code that has, you know, mostly punishments kind of tacked onto it. And that that's not how Sharia worked. It's not how um, the, the whole system is upended. It, it's not, uh, anyway. So that's pretty much the case in uh, around the world, even Saudi Arabia. Um, I had 
my Islamic law professor, I remember he once said that Saudi Arabia would be freer if they actually applied Islamic law. And he was Christian. <laughs> so um, what's going on in Saudi Arabia is also a different situation. And it has to do with um, the Wahhabi extremist sect that partnered with the Al Saud family and um, sort of founded Saudi Arabia in the early 20th century. Uh, historically, the scholars and the ruler were sort of at odds with one another in Saudi Arabia, their partners. And there are other differences too um, as to why it's really not Sharia, the way that Sharia worked for a thousand years in Islamic lands. Right. Now, it seems like with anything, the extremists are the ones that get the most press and the things that are fearful and um, unappetizing to us are the things that we hear the most about. Um, so we have these, these groups that, are, and we hear so much about them, and then that's touted as a reason to fear Islam or, or Muslim people. And this has come into North America now in Europe, where people are fearing this, this so-called um, taking over of society by Sharia. Can you, can you talk about the, the disinformation? I mean, there's that 2000, in 2010, you, you write about the disinformation campaign that was started in the U.S. Can you speak to that as a start? Yeah, so, so in, um, I think it was 2010, I went back for one of my, my Stanford reunions and I was at the Stanford bookstore and it was an alumni authors event and there I was, hopefully standing beside a pile of my books, um, hoping that somebody would come and buy one, <laughs> feeling very awkward. And um, this older couple who was there for their 50th reunion came up to me and they said, you know, we're really afraid that, that Sharia law is taking over the United States. And, I, and this is kind of the first I had heard of this sentiment. And I said, well, actually it can't because we have a constitution which prevents that from happening. And they said, well, Rush Limbaugh said it could. And they walked away, didn't buy a book. So, <laughs> and so I thought, wow, what is going on? So what happened in 2010 is that there was a spike in Islamophobia and it was very strange because there were no terrorist attacks. There was nothing in particular that happened that was violent that should have given rise uh, to Islamophobia, except that a man named David Yerushalmi, who is an American right-wing lawyer um, and is part of the well-documented loose Islamophobia network um, in the United States, um, he, he, what he wanted to do was introduced the idea of a scary Islamic law uh, ready to take over the United States. Now he's a lawyer. I'm sure he knows that this is not possible because we have a constitution. But um, by, by, he sort of implies this himself, that he didn't really care. What he wanted to do is just introduce the idea and make it part of the public discourse. And so he started to go to state legislatures and um, tell the legislators that it was their duty to enact anti-Sharia legislation. He said, you have to enact anti-Sharia legislation because otherwise Islamic law is gonna take over the United States. This was a colossal waste of time and money. Uh, there's no need for such legislation. Um, and yet 14, 14 American states have passed 
anti-Sharia legislation. The American Bar Association has come out very much against these, and you know they're unconstitutional in many ways. They're um, they they actually cause other problems when it comes to evaluating foreign law in American courts because that happens all the time. You know we have multinational organizations that that are uh, that have contracts that are governed by a, a variety of, of foreign laws, and American courts have to evaluate those. Um, as a matter of course, this has always been the case. So um, these laws prevent that from happening. Um, one of them has already been struck down as unconstitutional. Um, one of them, which didn't pass in Tennessee, one of them would have made um, saying my prayers to be a criminal act. So they're really... Wow, yeah. Yeah. How is, how, how is this kind of... Um uh law in these 14 states how is it affecting sort of your average american muslim citizen well um actually over 200 of these laws have been introduced in 43 states so even though they've only passed in 14 they've been introduced all over the united states and what that does in general terms is it otherizes muslims it portrays them as being incompatible with the constitution as unable to follow american law you know the muslims are portrayed as um being required to only follow sharia law uh, which is ironic because under sharia itself muslims have to follow the law of the country in which they live so under sharia i have to follow american law so it's really ironic that they're saying oh no you know muslims are incompatible with american law and constitution this is not a, a new argument by the way this this argument has been applied to in America to the Chinese, to um, Italians, Jews, to um, well now Muslims uh, as incompatible with the Constitution or incompatible with democracy. You know when I remember, well I don't remember, but I know that when JFK was <laughs> um, running for president, they said he would be more loyal to the Pope than, than to the United States because he was Catholic. So these arguments are, are not new arguments, but the way this happened, which is to introduce anti-Sharia legislation, um, you know, that's that's kind of a new thing. But what it does is it, it promotes Islamophobia, it otherizes Muslims, it makes them appear to be incompatible with, with democracy in the United States. Right. This this uh, concept of fatwa that you mentioned, uh, of course, there there's that the famous um, uh, fatwa, the death sentence against Salman Rushdie after he published his book, The Satanic Verses, um, which created a huge misunderstanding about the actual meaning of fatwa. Can you can you talk about that? About Salman Rushdie and that and was a the, the true meaning of the term. Yeah, so a fatwa is. Um, a reasoned legal opinion by a recognized Islamic scholar. It's not binding. So it's a non-binding legal opinion. <laughs> okay, let's try again. A non-binding, well-reasoned legal opinion by a recognized Islamic scholar. Uh, it's not law. <clears throat> it's not binding. It's just a legal opinion. It's not unlike if you go to a law firm and say, here's what I want to do and I want a legal opinion and then they will do all the research and then they will give you a letter that is the legal opinion of the law firm. It, it's very, it's not that different. So a fatwa is not something where, where you go and you 
you know, issue death sentences and tell people that they need to assassinate other people. And sometimes I tell people, look, you know, a quarter of the world's population is Muslim. <clears throat> We're talking about 1.7, 1.8 billion people. Um, if everybody had wanted to assassinate Salman Rushdie, they may very well have, you know, by now we're a quarter of the world's population. But um, Khomeini's fatwa was a political act. He wanted to burn bridges with the West. He would, had a personal vendetta against Salman Rushdie because Rushdie had made fun of him. And let's face it, Ayatollah Khomeini was, it was easy to make fun of him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he, you know, it was, it was both those things. Um, and so he did this, his fatwa was not agreed with by, by most Islamic scholars. There were a lot, there were many open letters criticizing the fatwa. Um, and again, you know, fatwa is, it's not law, it's, it's a legal opinion. I mean, his opinion was flawed because it violated several aspects of Islamic law, but even if it hadn't been flawed, it was, it was just his opinion. Um, and also in Islam, you cannot just assassinate someone without giving them a fair trial. You can't uh, just go assassinate them because they have left Islam, uh, which is, was, I think, the basis of the fatwa was sort of apostasy. Even under medieval classical Islamic law, you weren't allowed to just go kill somebody because they left Islam. In fact, um, there are several examples of the Prophet Muhammad in the seventh century who didn't you know, punish people who, who left the Muslim community back then. So it was, um, it was a political act. And um, unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, Muslims don't get into the media unless we're doing bad things. Right. Uh, right. And there was a Georgetown study that showed that uh, about 90% of news stories that feature Muslims are in the context of violence. So, you know, if I only heard about Buddhism in the context of violence, then I might very well think that Buddhists were violent more so than other people, right? Oh, by the way, Ross, there's an interesting study. Can I tell you? Um, please, so, please. Yes. <laughs> um, this is a typical thing, right? I mean, when I was a baby lawyer and I had just started and there was a partner who sat me down and said, um, I, oh, you're Muslim? I have to talk to you. Why are Muslims more violent than other kinds of people? And I was like, here I am looking nonviolent in my new suit and my new pubs and trying to be, you know, a corporate lawyer. And, and um, so Stephen Fish, who is a professor at the University of California at Berkeley, decided that he would find out because this is something that is very, this has been floating around for centuries, right? This idea that Muslims are more violent than other kinds of people. And he thought, well, let's, let's just see if they are. If Muslims are more violent than other kinds of people, then homicide rates in Muslim majority countries should be higher, right? Absolutely. And so, yeah, so he did this empirical study, um, this huge empirical study, and he found that um, actually homicide rates in Muslim majority countries were lower. Not just that, really kind of stunningly, he found that the high, and he controlled for all other factors as well. He also found that the, the the larger the Muslim population, the lower the homicide rate. So that completely defies our normalized cultural understanding of Muslims, right? right. And, it, and it's so hard to accept things that are, that are contrary to our worldviews. 
you know, this for all of us, um, I think we've all heard of confirmation bias, right? And it's so hard to hear things that don't confirm our own biases and that are actually contrary to our worldviews. But that's one of them. It's interesting to, to me to try and understand um, uh, the view that we have on women and women's rights in Islam versus the actual reality and the essence of Islam. Can you talk about um, the, the teachings in the Quran and the Sunnah about uh, about women and women's rights? And then maybe we can get into a little bit about um, where these perceptions come from, about how women are treated in the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. Well, so first of all, there's no question that some Muslim women are, are oppressed and in bad situations. There's no, no question about that. Um, but to attribute that to Islam is a mistake because one thing to remember is that most Muslim majority countries are developing countries and they have all the problems of the rest of the developing world. I mean, women are not treated very well in South America either. Um, you know, there are all kinds of problems, right? They're, they're, the throwing acid in women's faces, that's also occurred in, in Latin America. Um, you know, sexual slavery, um, honor killings, those kinds of things are prevalent in, in developing countries. Um, so to say that, well, if it's Muslim women, then it's because of Islam that they're in a bad situation. Whereas if it's Christian women, it's because they're in a developing country. <laughs> that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, um, so I, never knew Islam was sexist until someone at my law firm told me. <laughs> because, you know, my, my parents, um, the most important thing to them was that I be financially independent and that I not have to rely on anyone. They, they were so um, strict when it came to schoolwork and doing well in school. And um, they were very rigid about how I had to be a doctor because in their mind, they were Indian immigrants and in their mind, a doctor was the only way that you could be financially independent. And so I was of course a grave disappointment when I went to law school. <laughs> so, um, but you know, I never felt like, I never felt any sexism until, um, you know, until people around me started talking about Islam as sexist. And I thought, wow, I, I didn't know that <laughs> I was slim. So, um, so even now, so I always thought of Islam as feminist because that's what my parents taught me. They said, um, you know, the prophet said, pursue knowledge, even if you have to go all the way to China, which was a long way by camel in those days. Right. And, um, this applies even more in Islam to women at least according to some scholars, it applies even more to women because they are often more in the position to relay that knowledge to the next generation, right? So uh, that's what my parents told me. And um, so in the seventh century, um, Norman, I think it was Norman Daniel, who was a, a British historian, he said in the seventh century, the Quran and Muhammad gave women more rights than English women would have for another thousand years. 
which is a remarkable thing, right? So in the seventh century, Muslim women were given the right to divorce, the right to um, custody of their young children, the right to enter into their own contracts. So they were given legal personhood, uh, legal um, means to enter into their own contracts and transact their own their own transactions. Uh, their, yeah, <laughs> and um, they were. Uh, what else? Oh, they were given mandatory rights of inheritance. And so I always talk about how, you know, I'm sure you read Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. So you know about Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, right? And Elizabeth Bennett and her three sisters were not going to get anything. Um, for those of you who like Jane Austen, um, she wasn't going to get anything because the father's estate would all go to their odious cousin, Mr. Collins, right? Mm. Um, and that was in the early 19th century. In the seventh century, um, and I actually worked this out in my book, in this, if, if they had been Muslim in the seventh century, they would have mandatorily received, I think it's 524ths of the estate, but can't be quoted on that. <laughs> but um, they had a mandatory right to inheritance. A daughter wouldn't get as much of a son as a son because the son was in charge of the whole tribe and he went to war, but she would get a mandatory portion. So um so i think so those were some of the rights that muslim women got and if they were not equal rights the way that we think of equal rights i mean they weren't it was easier for a man to get a divorce than a woman to get a divorce but just the fact that she could get a divorce when when english women couldn't get a divorce until the late 1800s i mean that was a remarkable thing so so it's not literally it's not the literal provisions that I that I look at. Um, it's the fact that even in the seventh century, the rights of women was were of such concern to the Quran and Muhammad. So how could it not be a feminist religion when it was it was so progressive for the seventh century? And you know, to take that as the maximum is not right. It was it was progressive for its time. It was feminist for its time. And certainly there are lots of now Muslim women scholars who are reinterpreting um, Islam, the Quran now in, in modern ways um, that um, unread some of the interpretations of medieval men. Because, you know, it, seventh, eighth, ninth century men, it was very hard for them to, to understand how women could get all these rights. Like, how is this possible that they, that they got part of the estate? Why did they get part of the estate? They didn't go to war. So women's, not, women's rights were not a thing in the, in the seventh and eighth century. Right, right. So like, like any religion, it's adapting to the times that it's in. And just to summarize and clarify, what we're seeing in terms of women's like human rights violations in certain uh, Islamic uh, majority countries is more to do with the fact that they're developing nations. It's a sociocultural issue, you're saying, rather than um, specifically to do with uh, an inherent uh, flaw in, in Islamic or Sharia law. That's right. I don't think there's anything in, in Sharia or Islam that prevents a woman from from doing anything she wants to do, really. I mean, and the fact that in the world there have been 14 Muslim women who have been presidents or prime ministers of Muslim populations, um, that proves that 
you know, Muslim women can be what they want to be, right? I mean, I tell people this, and most of them are shocked. Most people don't know that there have been 14 Muslim women presidents and prime ministers, and that's 14 more than we've had in the United States, I might just point out. Right. And, and the fact that men elected them and that they were respected as women heads of state, I mean, that should tell you something right there, right? Um, there's also a study that came out a few years ago that showed that opportunities for women around the world um, were primarily due to poverty. They controlled for all other factors and they found, nope, it wasn't religion, it wasn't culture, it wasn't um, politics. The number one factor that prevented women from opportunities was poverty. And I do know someone who builds girls' schools in Pakistan, and she said, yeah, the Taliban are a problem. They do, they do cause problems. They do burn down schools every so often, but by far the worst uh, obstacle to girls going to school is poverty. Okay, thank you. We've got some nice questions coming in here from the audience, and just to build on, on that um, uh, topic of women and women's rights, there's a question from Alana asking, what are your views on the hijab and burqa? Oh, so that's a good question. Um, and you know, I think because it's so visible, it tends to get more attention than it should because we're very visual creatures, human beings are, right? <laughs> and so, um, so in Islamic law, um, the Quran has has really only three verses of the 6,200 and I think 37 verses of the Quran, only three have to do with clothing. So it's not a big deal for the Quran <laughs> what you wear, but there are three. And um, one says that men should be modest and women should be modest. And it's a very equal sounding verse. So men should be modest, women should be modest. Men should lower their eyes in modesty, women should lower their eyes in modesty. So the question was for Islamic scholars, what's modest, right? And modesty, um, as they understood, can change according to time and place and culture, right? You wouldn't wear the same thing to the beach as you would to a concert at Carnegie Hall, right? At least I, I hope. So it's... Uh, it's a subjective thing. So, so the Islamic scholars who discussed, and they discussed what was what was modest for men too, but with respect to women, um, they all agreed that women should be covered from their shoulders to their knees. But beyond that, there was a disagreement. So, for example, most of them said that only the hands, face, and feet should show, but uh, they disagreed on what what's the hands. It's, is it the hand to the wrist or the hand to the elbow? Is uh, if you put, have to cover your hair, well, do you have to cover it from the very front of your face or, or can just something down the back of your head be enough? It, um, you know, does feet, feet can show, but does feet mean feet to the ankle or feet to the knees? So there is all kinds of uh, disagreement. Uh, most, of the, most of them said that Muslim women should cover their hair, but, but some of them didn't say that. As far as burqas, very, very few of them said that a face veil, um, that, that women should cover their faces. And in fact, most Islamic scholars believe that the face veil uh, predates Islam to a time when both men and women uh, covered their faces really to keep the sand out. It's not, it, 
and also veiling tended to be associated also, for example, in the Persian Empire with, with high class. So high class women um, veiled just to show their high status and that somehow also became associated with Islam. But uh, most Islamic scholars do not think um, that the face veil is something that's required. In fact, on Hajj, you're, you're not allowed to wear a face veil. And I think on uh, in Al-Hazhar, in Al-Azhar in Egypt, Cairo, um, also you're not allowed to wear a face veil in class if you're a, if you're a woman student. So I'll give you um, just a, an example of this. In Egypt, about 10 years ago, there was a big public debate between two very high-level Islamic scholars. One was the uh, Grand Mufti of Al-Azhar University, and the other one was the head of the Supreme Court, who is a renowned Sharia scholar. And they had a big debate in the public of whether a Muslim woman had a duty to cover her hair. And one said she didn't have a duty to cover her hair, and the other one said she did. And they both had, they're both learned, they both had lots of documentation and support for their, for their positions, and, and they reached different conclusions. So this is fifth in action, right? You have two fatwas, you have two Islamic scholars, and you know, they're saying, well, I, I don't think one, a woman has to cover her hair, but God knows best. And the other one saying, well, I think a, a woman does have a duty to cover her hair, but God knows best. And um, as a Muslim, I can decide who do I want to follow? Whose opinion do I want to follow? That's, and, and each of them is valid. Each of them are valid opinions. So that's, uh, yeah. So when we hear about it being in, imposed on people, again, that's an extremist um, a way of doing things as opposed to actually coming from the essence of Sharia. Yeah. So nobody says it's okay to impose it. So even the guy who said, yeah, it's a duty to cover your hair doesn't say, and if you don't do it, you should be imprisoned or attacked or whatever. So even, I mean, there's no evidence that the prophet Muhammad ever forced any woman to cover her hair. So, so these are all academic questions. Like, do you, should you or shouldn't you? And they, you know, they disagree on whether you should or you shouldn't. But um, nobody except that, like the Taliban and ISIS, like nobody says you do or else. Right. Thank you. And there's a comment from Nurhan um, on this that just says there's nothing in the Quran that says you have to cover your hair or how the hijab should look like. It was only a cultural development, like you're saying, of what men thought it should be, not to forget that people were living in the desert, again, something you commented on, and both men and women covered their head from the sun. And Norhan says, please make this clear. So just wanting to reiterate that. Yeah, and there is, you know, there is still disagreement on that. I mean, that's certainly one view that Islamic scholars have, but there are other views as well. Um, I happen to agree with Norhan, but, uh, you know, there are other scholars like the Grand Mufti of, of Al-Azhar who said, no, you have a duty to cover your hair. But, you know, let's remember in the seventh century, everybody in the world covered their hair. Everybody, you know, there are so many pictures of the Madonna and child and she always has her hair covered, right? Mm -hmm. It's just what people did at the time. So. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. There's a question I'm glad uh, from Nazanin. I'm glad Nasanin is asking this because we had talked about it a bit before we started. Um, the question is, can you speak to the representation of Sufism in the West as being distinct and separate from Islam? 
Oh, so interesting, isn't it, that we were talking about this, Ross? Yeah. 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 So I, I, I remember I was um, in my 20s and I was working and, and this colleague burst into my, into my office and she said, I found it. I found it. I, I've, I found the answer. I, I'm, I'm going to be a Sufi. And um, it's true. Like people in the West tend to think of Sufism as different from Islam and they don't even realize it's part of the same religion. So it, it's very strange to me because, um, so, okay. So to be a Sufi, you first have to be a, a Sunni or Shia Muslim. So it's kind of like, imagine a circle and imagine a point in the center of the circle that's God. So Sufism is, a, is like a line from the perimeter of the circle to the center. It's, it's like a way to reach God, a way to be closer to God. But first you have to stand on the circle and the circle is to be a, a Muslim, either Shia or Sunni. So you can have Shia, Sunni, uh, Shia Sufis or Sunni Sufis. It's hard to say that really fast, <laughs> but, but you do have to be Muslim first before you can be a Sufi. It's, it's a part of Islam. You believe in Islam and then you attain, and then you follow this way. Sufism is not a sect. It's a way, it's a way to be closer to God. Hmm. So, um, when people say, oh, I'm a Sufi, but not a Muslim, it's like saying, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in Jesus Christ. It's, and to me, it's cultural misappropriation because, you know, it's, it's, it's taking this practice and removing it from its, from its origin. Um, it's, I mean, it's okay. You don't have to, it's okay to sort of partake in Sufi practices. I'm not saying that everybody who partakes in Sufi practices has to be a Muslim, um, but you have to understand that to call yourself a Sufi, you have to be a Muslim. And I think a lot of this also has colonial baggage attached to it because um, when the British and the French uh, colonized Muslim lands, and by the way, nearly 90% of Muslim lands were colonized by Western powers for a century or more that had a huge disruptive effect on, on Muslim civilization. So they, they came across Sufism and they liked it. And so they separated it from Islam. It's like, oh, we like, we like Sufism. It's not like those hated Muslims. It's not like, it's, it's not Islam. But, you know, there, and, but, but it's, it's just a different way of thinking about Islam. I mean, there have been militant Sufis. Sufis have gone to war. You know, other uh, Muslims, not Sufis, have been pacifists. So this kind of black and white delineation is really not accurate. Right. Okay. Thank you. There's an interesting question from Saul, who says, uh, or Saul, pardon my pronunciation, thank you for writing your books and for sharing these perspectives. Does it become mentally exhausting to keep answering the same questions <laughs> over and over, especially the ones based on misinformation? <laughs> like, how would you like discussions with non-Muslims about Islam to be? You know, John Esposito, who is a professor of Islamic studies at Georgetown, he says, he says he has the best job in the world because he just answers the same questions over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I have to say, though, it, it becomes a little disheartening sometimes uh -huh. because 
I do feel like, boy, I'm trying and trying and trying. And, you know, we've all been trying to explain ourselves and it's very hard to overcome some of these stereotypes. We're not the only ones though, you know, um, black people have been dealing with the same kind of stuff for, for decades, centuries really. Um, but there, there is a reason um, should we talk about this a little bit? There is a, you know, when I was thinking about the disinformation campaign yeah. and how they wanted to raise the specter of a scary Islamic law, um, the question in my mind was, why were people so quick to believe this guy? All it would have taken was a call to an Islamic studies professor or an imam at a mosque just to debunk this idea that Islamic law was trying to take over the United States. Um, so why were they quick to believe the fear monger? And the answer is actually because there's a long historical tradition in the West of viewing Muslims through the lens of the enemy. Uh, this is akin to anti-Semitism. So when Islam was born in the seventh century, um, Muslims knew about Christianity and Judaism. The Prophet Muhammad had Christian relatives. He, he had Jews in his community. Um, and in fact, Islam accepts Judaism and Christianity as part of itself. So there was no fear on the, on the part of Muslims towards these traditions. But for Western European Christians, they saw this new phenomenon. And to them, of course, it was a false religion. Um, so they saw this new phenomenon and it was spreading fast and they thought, well, how could a false religion spread so fast? It must be because they're converting people at sword point. Um, it must be because, you know, they're the Antichrist. Muhammad is the Antichrist. And so they never really, I mean, they didn't know any Muslims. Um, <clears throat> they didn't really have contact with them. And so there grew up this whole mythology around what Muslims believed and practiced. And some of them are like outrageous things. There are whole books written on this, so I, I won't get into it, but a whole mythology of tall tales. And this infused our historical narratives, literature. It still infuses our film and television textbooks. Um, so this whole um, lens of how we view Muslims as the enemy is still with us and it comes at us from all different directions. So the media, is subject to the same the same lens, the same framework as anybody else. The media amplifies it. So the fact that um, Muslims are never on the media unless we do something bad, that's typical of seeing Muslims through the lens of the enemy, right? If, if, if Muslims are the enemy, then everything they do is gonna be bad. If they do something good, we're just gonna ignore it. So that's, uh, I mean, the, the fact that People are so shocked when I say there have been 14 Muslim women presidents and prime ministers. They start writing, they want me to tell them the names and the countries. And I always say, you can Google them. They're presidents. <laughs> They're not a secret. <laughs> so, so, um, so that, I mean, that is why there is this, such a resistance. It's like a cultural framework that we're living in and it's cultural confirmation bias which is why it's so hard to overcome some of these view ways of looking at muslims and so going back to the question um sometimes it is disheartening sometimes it's it's frustrating to try to talk about all this um 
But, you know, then I tell myself that, okay, it might be a drop in the bucket, but drops make a river. Mm-hmm. I, like, I like it at the end of the book, you talk about shifting from an us versus them paradigm to an all of us outlook. And that seems very important. This, this idea of othering each other, regardless of what religion or group we're talking about, is only going to be harmful to all of us in the end. It really is. And I, I, mean, I do believe that if um, God or, or perfection or whatever you want to call it is at the top of a mountain, then there are lots of different paths up the mountain. So I do, I do believe that. And I think we all need to believe that. And also, you know, so many of us believe, um, I think it's maybe a natural human tendency to believe that, that, that this is a zero-sum equation, that if other people do better, then I must be doing worse. But that's not necessarily the case. Um, we can all do better, and, and I mean, other, we can all do better together, and I think that's where we have to stop thinking of an us-them us, sort of mentality. It hampers us. It, it, it causes warfare. It, it paints people as the enemy that we have to go and obliterate. Um, it distracts us from the real problems in the world. Like how many trillions of dollars have we spent on war since 9-11? According to Physicians for Social Responsibility, um, the US and its allies in the last 20 years have killed up to 2 million Muslim civilians. Wow. That's that's a huge number. Yeah, that's right. So, and it's because of this us, them, you're with us or you're against us mentality. And it prevents us from seeing clearly, I, I think. Yes. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's I, This is a really important and timely conversation, I think. And I, I'm grateful for you Um presenting your ideas so clear, clearly and calmly and skillfully. And I'm sure you face uh, a, a lot of pressure and, and obstacles in the work you're doing. So I really wish you well. Um, well, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been an honor. To let everybody know, again, we've been speaking with Sumbul Ali Karamali and her book is, her latest book is called Demystifying Sharia what it is, how it works, and why it's not taking over our country. If you want to learn more about her, you can go to her website. The easiest one to remember is probably muslimnextdoor.com for those who might have trouble spelling your name. (laughs) Big thank you to the Banyan Books, the whole community, everybody um, that works behind the scenes in the the store at Banyan Books, our, our owner Colin, who's been doing it since inception and still at it. And of course, our amazing events coordinator and podcast producer, Jacob Steele, for all that he does um, uh, for Banyan Books and and these programs. Uh, Again, Sumbul, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound. Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books 
or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.